0: Rackhouse Ramblings episode number 26, take one. All right, this is Rackhouse Ramblings episode number 26. I'm Jeff, your host, of course. This is the sixth episode of the second season. I got a lot to talk about, don't know where to start, so we're just going to jump right into it and get into it. Um, like I was saying in the last episode, or was it the episode before, I don't remember now, but we're going to start with bourbon, and we're going to carry it through the whole episode. And uh, this week's bourbon spotlight, right out of the gate we're doing it, <laughs> uh, it's not so much a, uh, a bourbon to sample, but a whiskey. So last week I was at uh, Archery Deer Camp. And my longtime friend Joe C gifted me a bottle of Copper Queen whiskey. Pretty cool stuff. I've known Joe C for many, many years. We started in the fire service together. Shout out to Joe C. Thanks for the for the gift. I really appreciate it. So, um, Joe is one of my devoted listeners and <laughs> apologized over and over when he gave me this bottle. It was funny. First, uh, because it's not a bourbon, and second, because it's not single barrel. Man, Joe really listened. That was pretty cool. That, that made me feel good. Um, but he knew uh, that I'd like the story behind this bottle, and he was right. So um, usually, like when I, when I do this, you hear me open the bottle, pop the cork, all that sort of thing. So this bottle's already been opened; we've already uh, had some of it, probably more than half of it, uh, I should say. Um, so I already know I like it. It was pretty good. But let me tell you about this whiskey. It's called uh, Copper Queen Whiskey. Uh, it's from Iron Fish Distillery in Thompsonville, Michigan. So uh, like all my other reviews, we're going to start out their websites, www.ironfishdistillery.com. Check it out. Cool website. A lot of cool shit to read. So while we do that, before we do that, um, I'm going to open the bottle. We're going to take a sip. Stay right there. Uh, Cool bottle, when you look at the label, it's done in like an old-fashioned, old-timey font or text, what have you, and uh, it says Copper Queen Whiskey, high-grade, a blend, 43% alcohol by volume, 86 proof, 750 ml, produced and bottled by Iron Fish Distillery, Thompsonville, Michigan. Our stories define us, and when we're lucky, those stories unfold against a backdrop of impossible beauty. This unparalleled commemorative spirit celebrates and supports a gem in the heart of Michigan's rural upper peninsula, the historic Calumet theater. Take a sip of history. Your copper queen beckons a portion of the sales benefit, the historic Calumet theater in Calumet, Michigan. So I don't know if you guys know, but uh, the Keweenaw Peninsula way up there uh, is a town of Calumet. has a lot of history, a lot of mining history, um, theater. At one time, I believe the town was pretty well off because of mining and that's, uh, I imagine how they got a theater. I'm just uh, speculating here. Of course, careless speculation I like to do. But uh, I poured a, uh, a sip of this. We'll check it out. It has a really good nose. I did, That's one thing I really, when you smell this uh, whiskey, it's really, I smell caramel. I smell nutmeg, a little bit of vanilla. And it's a very, very good sip sipping whiskey. Um, You can tell it's not a single barrel, but I'll tell you what, it is pretty darn good. And I really do like the story. I like the Michigan connection, like the Calumet Theater connection. Pretty good. So here we go. We're going to start out their webpage. And this is, uh, it says, this is Iron Fish. Iron Fish Distillery is Michigan's first working farm solely dedicated to the practice of distilling small batch craft spirits. Our family reclaimed a late 1890s abandoned farmstead. With the simple mission in mind, we create exceptional spirits from the ground up. Growing our own grain and sourcing grain from Michigan farmers with practices that respect the health of nearby watersheds. Our true passion is to offer customers and visitors the craft of soil-to-spirit distilling from a family business that cares about our employees, community, and the living land. Every step of the process from growing and harvesting non-GMO grain to cultivating native yeast, milling, mashing, fermenting, distilling, Aging and bottling is done by hand at our distillery. We replace global with local wherever we can, with the highest standards along the way. Pretty interesting stuff. It goes on to say, return to the river. Come tour Ironfish for a taste of exceptional spirits. Locally harvested and passionately produced and distilled in small production runs. We take our inspiration from the powerful, determined, and strikingly beautiful steelhead fish that run the Betsy River nearby. As the steelhead return each year, we bring the heritage and unique flavors of American small distilled spirits. The two-generation farm along the Betsy River watershed went quiet for over two decades. Having grown up vacationing nearby, we knew the spirit of the landscape and wanted to do what we could to preserve it. We purchased the farmland in 2011 without purpose until 2013 when a trip to northern Scotland changed our course. There we drew inspiration from distilleries generations old and from farm distillery on the island of Isley. From this inspiration, Iron Fish Distillery came to life. And vitality has come back to this farmland through our long shared family passion of craft spirits. Beyond family founders, our success lies in the hearts and skills of our team and in our shared commitment to give back to our community and protect the land. Even before Iron Fish Distillery produced its first bottle of spirits, we decided that our production and business practices would be as sustainable as possible. We would restore and protect the land, water, and air we depend on, not just to do less harm, but to do more good. We would rebuild the health of the soil on the 120 acre abandoned farm we were bringing back into production. We would use farm practices that protect the source or protect the surface and groundwater of the Betsy River watershed, our home. We would reduce our carbon footprint by installing solar panels and state of the art heat pumps that extract heat from the air without burning fuel. We would plant trees. Compost organic material, use spent mash as feed for bison, and recycle what's used in the distillery and tasting room. All this has come to pass. Our farming practices have been certified by Michigan Agricultural, Agriculture Environmental Assurance Program. Our solar panels produce 7,000 kilowatt hours electricity annually, adding to the Michigan-leading renewable energy we obtain from Cherryland Electric. Our planting of cover crops, clover, winter peas, forage turnips, and more improve soil improve soil health naturally and acts as a carbon sink. Our farm fields act as a carbon sink. We also manage and preserve 47 acres of maple forest and we reduce our water footprint by limiting, limiting irrigation to just gardens and using a closed loop chiller in the fermenting process. Hmm. But there's always more that we can do. So we are piloting the planting of sun hemp as a cover crop with accelerated production of nitrogen and organic matter to build up soil, capture more carbon. We're starting a conversation with glass suppliers and label printers to increase recycled content. We're also looking at ways to capture more of the carbon produced in the distilling process. This is Iron Fish's Sustainable Spirits pledge to our customers, partners, community and mother nature. Here's their pledge. We will continue to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels we will use renewable and recyclable material as much as possible. We will use sustainable firing methods. We will maintain our forests in a sustainable manner. We will always strive to be better and better stewards of our watershed and ecosystem. Wow. Whew. That's a lot. Sorry, guys. Thanks for bearing uh, listening through with me. So went to their website. Um, another cool thing I saw on their website was uh, their different selection of spirits and there's quite a few of them. So here we have, right, Copper Queen Whiskey, right? Um, let me read through their list of spirits. They have Experimental Barrel-Aged Gin, Michigan Rye Vodka, Bourbon Whiskey Imperial Stout Casks, Michigan White Rum. They have Dark Rum, Bourbon Whiskey, Tawny Port Casks, Michigan Woodland Gin, Michigan Winter Wheat Vodka, Bourbon Whiskey Finished in Cher- Sherry Casks, Rye whiskey, bourbon whiskey, Caribbean cask, white whiskey, maple bourbon whiskey, rascatoon, raspberry and Saskatoon liqueur, straight bourbon whiskey, of course, copper queen whiskey, four casks. then they also have bourbon whiskey finished in cognac barrels and original aged gin. Then they have bourbon whiskey finished in Mezcal barrels and then barrel strength bourbon whiskey finished in maple syrup barrels. Whew. Damn, that's a lot. My mouth is tired from all that. <laughs> and in case you're keeping track, that's 21 different spirits. That, that's a lot. Hang on a second. So there you go. Um, a few sounded real interesting to me, especially the uh, the, the bourbon finished in Moscow, and then the uh, bourbon finished in maple syrup barrels. And then also maple bourbon whiskey sounded good, and their straight bourbon whiskey sounded good. Caribbean cask bourbon sounded good. Well, there's quite a few of them. Um, I did uh, pick the one to find out more about the Copper Queen whiskey that we're sampling today. So it's 86 proof. Uh, their literature says our stories define us. And when we're lucky, these stories unfold against a backdrop of impossible beauty. This unparalleled commemorative spirit celebrates and supports a gem in the heart of Michigan's rural upper peninsula. The historic Calumet Theater. Take a sip of history. Your Copper Queen beckons. Iron Fish Distillery... Makes charitable contributions to benefit the historic Calumet Theater in Calumet, Michigan. Not available in our tasting room. Only select retailers throughout Michigan. Blah, blah, blah. So there you have it. Iron Fish Distilleries. Pretty cool story. Um, it, it, I wanna, of course, I want to say thanks again to Joe. This is a, a good whiskey. I'd, I'd recommend it. If you saw it, buy it. I like the story. I like that it supports something in Michigan. So that was pretty cool. Um, that being said, we're going to sip some throughout this episode. Episode 26 is started. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. Stay right there. We'll be right back. All right. Rackhouse Ramblings episode 26 is back. I just came home from uh, my archery hunt uh spent a few days up at the cabin uh so most of the podcast today is going to be focused on those adventures i got a few of them for you <laughs> right out of the gate if you follow me on instagram you already know i was successful uh the first deer i shot with my new psc brute uh, compound bow was pretty cool i got a spike buck um he dressed out oh just over 94 pounds um i did spend the day yesterday butchering him myself hung him up in the garage skinned him butchered him head to toe did everything myself was pretty cool. Um, I'm certainly not as fast as a butcher, not as fast as my buddy Gary that does it and things like that, but it's something I enjoy doing. Um, I guess it makes you feel a little more connected. And for me, it's kind of like, um, another part of the circle, right? So if you harvest it and you butcher it and you eat it, to me, that's kind of like the full circle. So when I butcher it myself, um, I take the time to trim it and I put a little seasoning on it and vacuum pack it. And I like to do a lot of roasts rather than steaks. And uh, also did neck roast, did like a, a blade roast from the shoulder, saved some of the front shoulder for asabuco, and uh, didn't end up with uh, six pounds of uh, ground venison too. So all that sort of thing. Um, but I enjoy it. It's something I like to do. It's not for everyone. Of course, my wife didn't like it because I made a mess all over the kitchen, but what are you going to do? It's a, it's a labor of love. So anyway, back to the, to the spike I shot, um, double, double undum, It was, uh, we, uh, ranged it out 33 yards, but I guess when I got to my stand and range, it was 36. So 36 from my elevated spot, 33 from the base of the tree. And when I shot him, didn't run far, 50, 60 yards, you know, um, when I was in my tree stand, I could, uh, hear him run off. I heard him crash and I knew where he went down and, uh, I guess before I go that far, listen. I ended up having to take two shots. So my first shot fell short. So when I'm sitting in my stand where I range, I, I, I'm guessing the deer going to come in was 30 yards, right? So he was there. I, I shot between his feet and then the deer stepped back like another 10 steps. So I went to the next pin and shot him there. So he gave me two shots. After the first one, he kind of looked around, had no idea what was going on. I was pretty high up and a little ways away, so he really didn't know anything. He just, all I heard was a thump. So takes about 10 steps back. So I hit him, bam, right, uh, right in pay dirt. And, uh, the first arrow kind of, um, hit a log that was below him. So the second arrow hit home. It was pretty cool. I climbed down from the stand, walked kind of around it, around the, the kill site and went to my cabin and uh, my hunting buddy, James was there. So we had some coffee, waited an hour just to be sure. So, uh, James and I started, uh, tracking, uh, at the spot where I made the shot. And the strange thing was, there was no deer hair and there's no blood. Um, there was just like a mark in the leaves where he started to sprint, kind of like a deer peel out in the leaves. And so I knew where the starting point was. And I, in my head, I knew where the crash point was from sitting up in the tree stand, but everywhere I looked around there, I couldn't find any blood. So the arrow wasn't, um, a pass through, uh, It was a pretty steep angle from where I'm shooting down at, but, um, so we walked in the direction where I heard him crash and sure enough, he was right there. It was not a hard, uh, hard, uh, tracking job at all. So the the arrow hit home right behind the right shoulder and because of the angle, um, the arrow entered high on the right side and then continued downward on the left and it passed through the left ribs and kind of hit his left elbow. So that's why it didn't go all the way through. It hit quite a bit of bone and, um, not only was I elevated in the tree stand, but I was kind of at the top of a hill, top of a ridge. So the angle was pretty steep. When I found the buck, the arrow was still in him, And, uh, when I pulled it out, of course, that's when all the blood came out. So needless to say the, the the broadhead did its job. My cheap broadhead from Myers, which is pretty awesome (laughs) or Meyer, right? Everyone teases me. I say Myers, but from Meyer for let's, you know what, before we go further, let's talk about broadheads too. Um, For my listeners that aren't familiar with a broadhead, let's just say this is the razor blade tip that attaches to the front of the arrow, right? So on arrows, there's different tips for different applications. So you can shoot, if you're doing targets or practicing, there's a field tip. that's kind of a dome shape and it's pretty dull. Um, But for hunting, you want like um, this razor sharp, you want razor, basically you want razors on the end, right? To penetrate through the skin into the animal and and do a humane thing. That's called um, a broadhead. And there's different types of broadheads. Some of them have three blades or three razors. Some of them have four blades or four razors. Some of them have two. Um, some of them can be fixed in position, uh, like a plus sign, and some of them can be uh, mechanical that open up on impact. Um, from what I was using for this harvest was a three-blade Fixed broadhead. And like I said, it came from Meyer on the clearance rack. They were three for 10, a <laughs> three pack for 10. I know some of you guys are going to hate this, but um, I love using those inexpensive broadheads. So a lot of my buddies out there, Rick and Gary, uh, Zip, you guys all, I know you guys use the more expensive, whether 20 or 30 or 40 bucks for a three pack, whatever. But um, you guys are all very loyal, whether it's Rage or whatever. You know, I know some guy uh, was it Swacker? That's another one. Rage is one G five or primes, another one. So you can imagine there's like this ongoing debate. And I always argue that, uh, whatever you're hunting in the game doesn't know the difference. Cause the way I see it, uh, the arrow, the arrows we shoot are over 300 feet per second and pretty much a butter knife would penetrate a deer hide (laughs) at 300 feet per second. I always joke about that, but being the ethical and the, the, the honest hunter that I am, I always strive to make a quick, humane kill. It doesn't always happen, but that's my goal. That's what I strive for. And on this one, it happened. And um, I have an ongoing joke with, uh, with the guys in my hunting circle, my bull hunter buddies, that none of the deer I ever harvested they ever complained about the price of my broadheads. (laughs) And I got to be honest too, like out of the package, I sharpen the broadheads. I have a little sharpening stone because I know when they come from the factory, they're sharp, but not as sharp as they could be. And the other reason, I guess it makes sense why I don't use expensive broadheads. So when you come to my hunting camp at my cabin, what you'll see, as soon as you walk in the door, uh, going, uh, look above your head, you'll see these three logs that cross the room. They, they, kind of support the building and all that. And along the logs, whenever somebody harvests a deer, I ask that they leave their arrow. Um, we put a couple of nails up and we hang the arrow across and you do a little postcard underneath it that tells about the hunt and the day and the year and what you used and all that. So going across the room on like a few of the logs, you're going to start to see probably, I don't know, a dozen or more since we've done our bow camp up there. Well, probably more than a dozen now, but every time somebody shoots a deer, you leave the arrow with the broadhead and a little story. So I know some of my buddies wouldn't want to leave like a $10 broadhead up there just for looks, but whatever. Um, anyway, that's what, that's what we do. So I leave all my cheap broadheads up there and, uh, it looks pretty cool when you walk in, you see all the arrows lined up. Anyway, I've gotten way off track. So we're going (laughs) to, we're going to reel it in and come back in. So I shot a buck, James and I, uh, dragged it back, carried it back to the cabin. We dressed it and hung it on the buck pole and all that. And I'm, I'm so slow at, at, doing all that. And James, it was probably one of the first times he had done it. So we kind of, I kind of talk him through it and it took us more than an hour longer than it should have. But anyway, we got the job done. And later that day, my buddy Josie arrived at deer camp and we celebrated. And, um, the funny thing, so Joe brings a bottle, but James also brought a bottle too, uh, bullet. And I know I've talked about bullet before. It's another one of my favorite bourbons. So, um, the funny thing was, so James brought bullet Uh, Joe C. brought uh, Copper Queen Whiskey and I already had a Buffalo Trace up there. So you could say we sipped, we sampled bourbon till late into the night. And then (laughs) I got to thank my buddy Joe for cooking that night. Um, He did a wonderful, wonderful job. We had some venison uh, tenderloins and we had Joe made an awesome venison backstrap that he kind of filleted out and put bacon in there and rolled it up into like this bacon uh, venison backstrap pinwheel roast. And it was so good. And he did it, of course, in a black iron skillet, which I love to use. And uh, we had a great night. We stayed up way, way too late. So speaking of special meals, I tried doing something uh, the next night, uh, something real unusual. It's not for everybody, but I wanted, this is something I really wanted to try. Every year for deer season, I have a list of goals. Um, this year, of course, I wanted to get one, not one deer, but I wanted to get uh, two deer. So that's still on my list. Uh, But another one of my goals was to eat deer tongue. And another goal was to roast a uh, deer head uh, underground. They call it barbacoa style. So that's what I wanted to do is get the skull, um, season it, do all this sort of stuff and do it. It's called barbacoa style. And I'd seen it on the show called Meat Eater. And so we tried it. James and I, he watches the show too. He's a big fan. So we had done all this prep work for Josie arrived. Um, I, uh, I brought a deer head to bow camp. And that was courtesy of my buddy, Gary. Thanks, Gary. I know you're listening. Thanks for the the deer head. Um, it was recovered from a roadkill. So anyway, we got it up North, James skinned it, seasoned it, uh, wrapped it up. So the idea is you start a campfire on the ground. We let it burn, get a good bed of coals. And after an hour or two, um, use the shovel and we kind of scoot the fire and all the coals over. And then we dig a hole underneath, directly underneath where the fire was like a pit. And, um, it was kind of cool. As we were shoveling out the dirt, you could see the steam coming off of the dirt where the ground was hot. And you put your hand in, you can feel it too. So it was pretty cool. So uh, we wrapped the head with like several layers, layers of aluminum foil, set it in the hole. And then so it wouldn't burn, we put like a damp towel over and then dirt and put it all back over and then move the fire right back over the same spot. And we stoked it, throwing some more wood um, I want to say that it was 1 or 2 p.m. I don't remember. James can probably correct me if he remembers. But we let it burn down. And about 3 o'clock, we went out to the woods, sit in our tree stands. We came back um, 5.30 or 6 that evening. It's dark. And you can still see these hot coals, really red hot coals. They're so hot. As a matter of fact, James cooked brats over that fire. And so around 7 o'clock, brats are done, uncover the fire, and um, dig it out, dig out the the, the head, the foil and all that sort of thing. And it ended up being a pretty big disappointment. It was only half cooked. The top half was cooked. So it was kind of like, it, it was a good thing we had brats. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I really, really, really wanted to try this roasted soul, So put it out in the woods for the coyotes and the critters will get it. They'll, they'll eat it. Not going to be for us. We'll try it again. Um, but we'll do it different next time. So anyway, um, the next thing was we're the, I noticed it was really, I didn't notice, it was freaking cold a few of the mornings in the 20s. And over the years, I've come up with like this layering system to stay warm, right? So I have like a a base layer of long underwear, another regular uh, fleece long underwear, and then uh, fleece pants and up. So like four layers on the bottom, four layers on the top. But no matter what I do, my toes will always get fro They always get cold no matter what. I wear these uh, muck boots or any kind. i got three different kind of boots, but my feet, my toes always get cold. So to help with this, sometimes I'll take, you know, the little chemical hand warmers, right? And all my buddies laugh at me for this, but um, I'll put them on the, the toe of my shoe or my boot, whatever I'm wearing, and then take a strip of medical tape and tape it on there. And it looks funny because you're walking around with these little white things on the tips of your shoes, but I'll tell you what, they work. So when I came home this time, I finally did it. I sewed up these little uh, pouches that will lace into your, uh, uh, a pouch that will hold the warmer and some tabs on it to lace in and a piece of elastic to go to go around your, your uh, foot. And I'll post a picture on my Instagram, but they freaking work. So ha, there you go. The other thing I do is um, I sew pockets into my long underwear to hold chemical warmers. So um, picture this, if you're sitting in a chair and you put your hand on top of your thigh, right there I would sew a pocket into my long underwear and I can put in the chemical little hand warmer. So I have one on each thigh. And then the other places um, on my uh, long underwear shirt, kinda on your back in the flank area where your kidneys are, I put one on each side there. So I'll go out with like four warmers And of course, two on my toes and maybe two in my pocket. Sounds like a lot, but the idea is um, it keeps me out in the woods. It keeps me warm. And uh, that's the whole idea because once you get cold, you're done. So and I know probably some of you out there saying, hey, Jeff, they have these peel and stick warmers and they go on your socks and blah, blah, blah. But here's what I'll tell you. Those chemical warmers, um, they work off of having air, fresh air, oxygen. That's why when you buy them and they're sealed in plastic, there's no air in there as soon as you open them up and they touch the air, they start to activate. So if you put them in your boot, lace up your boot and close it up, they'll probably work for maybe 30 minutes or whatever, but then they quit working because there's no air moving around in your shoes and your socks and all that. So there, they need to have fresh air to make them work. So there you go. I'll put a picture of that in my Instagram. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting something from the hunting week, but uh, we'll take a break and we'll be right back with the uh, next segment of Ramblings. episode 26 we're back and um, in case you guys didn't know last Tuesday uh, was the new season of Curse of Oak Island and guess what I'm a huge fan most of you guys know that I guess I I don't want to say I'm a closet Oak Island fan I'm 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 out there right out of the closet for Oak Island right um, it was a two hour episode <laughs> and they talked a lot about COVID and how it affects this year's dig season and blah blah blah. And you know, the Ligina brothers start out the show stuck in Michigan because they can't get across the border. And the Canadian guys are on the island, they're all working really hard. So the show is cut. Co- the episode's called Remote Control and they're doing a lot of stuff. Um, using Zoom and all that social media and all that crap stuff. But by the end of the show, um, they're united. The guys show up on the island. It's all great. And so they make a couple of discoveries on the show. But the one that stuck out to me, and I'm, hopefully you guys have watched, I'm not ruining anything, but they discover this stone foundation. foundation and one of the um, historians believe it is a pine tar kiln. So it's a kiln for rendering uh, tar out of pine somehow. And the kiln it supports my theory. I told Anne this. I have my own personal theory, and my theory is that the island was used as a place to stop and repair ships. It was kept secret because you didn't want anyone to know your ship was docked and unloaded. It'd be like a sitting duck, right? So that whole coast, the English and the French and the Spanish, everyone's used this coast uh, up and down, and it wouldn't have been marked on a map. Say, map, here's my repair shop. No, you would never put that on there, but what it was um, my theory anyway, is you would pull your boat in, uh, you would unload it and you would even unload, um, your ballast stones and all this weight would cause the ship to rise up. So that way you could work on the, um, line where the water hits. I can't right now I'm having a brain fart. What you would, uh, the water line, right? So you'd be able to make your repairs with pine tire and all that sorts of things. And there would even be a blacksmith area. Um, but when you unloaded your, your, uh, cargo and stuff, you might've had to bury it. And that's where I think that everyone thinks there's treasure. There was treasure there or what have you. But, um, that's my personal theory that the whole Island was used as a repair place where you could hide away. It's kind of hidden away from the, the ocean and this little Bay, Mahone Bay and all that sort of thing. And then when you were done, you would load back in your ballast stones, you'd load back in your cargo and you would be on your way. So there you go. That's my theory. Um, New season of Curse of Oak Island is out. Check it out. Um, I don't think I have anything else for episode 26 of Rackhouse Ramblings. I think uh, we will have some more in about a week. Um, got another new bourbon to try. Uh, got in, Went to the health food store. Got a couple of things there. We got something cool to talk to you guys about for the next episode. But I'm going to have a few more sips of the Copper Queen Whiskey. Thanks again, Josie. Thanks, James. Thanks, Gary. Uh, thanks to all my other listeners. I really appreciate you guys. And before we go off the air, reminder, I'm still looking for someone to sponsor my Wagyu Beef episode. You got to buy two steaks. I'll provide all the rest, the bourbon, the entertainment, the humor, the side dishes, what have you. So there you have it. Rackhouse House Ramblings, episode 26. We'll see you guys.